Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, everybody. Hi, guys. And welcome to Date Mates. This is the podcast for young people, for millennials, mm-hmm. who don't understand the opposite sex. Mm-hmm. And you want to get all of your dating questions resolved. Yes. I am Kieran. Kieran, ladies first. So, hi, guys. My name is Lydiana, and this is Kieran. <laughs> we met on Tinder in 2017, but she ghosted me. I ghosted you after a couple of days. Not immediately. It was the most pain I've ever experienced. But then, listener, then I was fortunate enough to bump into Lydiana outside of a club (laughs) in London. We both at that time didn't remember each other from Tinder, Mm -hmm. but we just met again Mm -hmm. and we got to talking. And she told me she teaches sensual dance for women. And you know what? I quite liked the sound of that. (laughs) So I took her Instagram (laughs) under fallacious... pretenses fast forward two years we never ever did speak on instagram and now we have our own dating related podcast yes and i'm so excited me too amazing so let's get started forgive me everyone it's been a long time a long time since you had another episode since you had the last episode sorry I've been rather busy in the last year. Uh, The somewhat long process of creating these shows, along with me doing things like the Intelligent Speech Conference in New York in June that I created and hosted, have all taken a toll on me completing this episode. Intelligent Speech, I hear you all say. Um, What's that? I did a conference which had Mike Duncan, formerly of this parish, who did uh, Revolutions in the History of Rome, David Crowther, The History of England, and Kevin Stroud, who does the history of English, all convened on New York with some other podcasters, some other great podcasters, for a day of sessions and panels, and it was a lot of fun. And one of the things I realised was that doing podcasts 
is kind of one thing but I know a lot of podcasters and that's the reason why I could put on something like Intelligent Speech was getting a whole load of great podcasters all in one place and putting them in front of their audiences and getting them to talk. So that's Intelligent Speech. If you go to intelligentspeechconference.com, you'll be able to pre-book for next year's Intelligent Speech show, which will happen on Saturday, June the 27th, again in New York, in Manhattan, at the Centre of Social Innovation. So why don't you go and do that? Lots of fun was had by all. Other things I've been doing in the last year is of course of the podcast so map corner if you're like me a cartophile if you love maps and cities and it's kind of becoming more of a podcast really about cities and travel as well as a love of maps that's map corner if you like us and uk politics or intrigued fascinated or just plain worried about it as a lot of people are at the moment there's mid-atlantic and each fortnight i go and speak to two pundits one us pundit one uk about politics on either side of the Atlantic. Then there's a show that I do, uh, The Things That Made England, which I do with David Crowther from the History of England, where we look at some of the cultural artefacts and phenomena which have made the country that we're both born in, England. And then uh, there is the Intelligent Speech show that I do, which is me speaking to somebody at length about any old topic, really. I think some of the conversations there can be insightful, and pretty surprising. So in the last year, I've spoken to a sex worker who's incredibly sex positive through to somebody who's directed a film about Marshawn Lynch, the footballer. So that's the Intelligent Speech Show. Things that I'm doing soon. You can catch me at the Sound Education Conference in Harvard, which is October the 10th to the 12th, I believe. I'm hosting a panel, How We Tell History, a perspective and a point of view in history podcasting. So I'm hosting that and I'll be joined by Robin Pearson of the History of Byzantium, Matt Breen from the Explorers podcast, Sarah Hanley-Cousins from Dig, a history podcast, and Mishy Harmon, who does the Israel Story podcast. If you'd like to buy a ticket for that, if you're going to be in and around Boston, uh, why don't you go to soundeducation.fm, that's soundeducation.fm. FM. My panel is on the 11th, uh, Friday the 11th. I'd love to see you there. I did go last year and I was pleasantly surprised how many people knew my work uh, that was there. Quite a few people came up to me and said, I listened to 10 American presidents or I listened to How Jamaica Conquered the World. And I gave two talks there and was on a panel last year. So soundeducation.fm if you're going to be in and around Harvard or Boston on October the 10th to the 12th and as I said my panel is on the 11th. Now today's show Jonathan Putnam who's today's reader completes his narrative of the young Lincoln that he started last year. Now his son Gray is a listener of this podcast and is the reason why you you are listening to this show right now. I think I can just about now call Jonathan a friend and it's apt that a family with such a storied past as the Putnam's uh, that goes all the way back to the founding of the United States are part of this series. Now, narrators are important, but so are you, the listeners. As always, the newspaper readings in this show were supplied by listeners who are also members of the 10 American Presidents Facebook group. And it really got me thinking that 10 American Presidents is unique amongst history podcasts for including its listeners in this way. And it helps to create a unique show. We are a community. 
So that's one way that people have shown their support for my endeavours. Another way of supporting the project is to make a donation. You can go and do this by going on to patreon.com or by going to 10usp.com, that's 10usp.com, and hitting that donate button. Anything you have to give will be greatly received. Now, after such an intro, it's on with the show, but not before I say I'm so sorry for taking so long in between producing the show. You won't have to wait a year for the next episode of 10 American Presidents. But here we are. It's part two of Jonathan Putnam's excellent narration of Young Lincoln. Hi, this is Jonathan Putnam. I hope you enjoyed this edition of The Young Lincoln on the 10 American Presidents podcast series. And I hope you'll check out my book series, The Lincoln and Speed Mysteries. My Lincoln and Speed mystery series features the young Lincoln and his real-life best friend, Joshua Speed, as they try to solve murder mysteries inspired by Lincoln's real-life legal cases. The latest book in that series is called A House Divided. It features the arrival in Springfield of a whip-smart, beautiful, and highly political young woman named Mary Todd. We see Lincoln and Speed fight over Mary's hand, even as she helps them discover clues towards solving the greatest unsolved murder mystery of Lincoln's actual law practice. A House Divided and all of the Lincoln and Speed Mystery series are available everywhere books are sold. I hope you'll give them a read. Hey, this is Gray Putnam. I've always been an avid listener of history podcasts, and I started out on 10 American Presidents when I heard that Mike Duncan was going to do an episode on George Washington. I've listened to every episode since. When I realized that Royfield hadn't covered Abraham Lincoln yet, I told my dad Jonathan he should reach out to see if they could work together. With my dad involved, it's been really neat to listen to the background he synthesized on the young Lincoln while writing about the man in his book series. I hope you enjoyed the show as much as I will. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Mr. Pop. Seven years ago, when in the course of human events, and so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. There is not a black America, and a white America, and Latino America, and Asian America. There's the United States of America. Abraham Lincoln, February 12, 1809 through April 15, 1865, was an American statesman and lawyer who served as the 16th President of the United States from March 1861 until his assassination in April 1865. This podcast is going to focus on the young Lincoln, roughly the first half of his life, the period of time when Lincoln was, in his own words, a piece of floating driftwood. My name is Jonathan Putnam, and I am a lawyer and author, the author of a number of books about the young Abraham Lincoln as part of the Lincoln and Speed mystery series. 
The books include Final Resting Place, Perish from the Earth, and These Honored Dead, all of which concern the life and times of Abraham Lincoln in the late 1830s, part of the period we'll be covering here today. Lincoln had a sort of complicated relationship with the Native Americans or the Indian tribes as he would have thought of them. And it started with some history that he learned when he was a very young boy. His grandfather, that is Thomas's father, who was also named Abraham Lincoln, was killed by an Indian in the late 18th century. The Indian who went ahead and was about to snatch Thomas away before one of their other relatives retaliated and killed the Indian. So Abraham grew up hearing this story from his father Thomas and uh, being very aware of Indian attacks. And there were a number of examples of Indian attacks on the white settlers on the frontier where Lincoln was living with his family. Of course, in the bigger picture, those attacks were dwarfed by the policy of the United States government in pushing the Indians further and further west by force if necessary, killing lots of Indians and dispossessing them of their tribal heritage lands. But it was definitely an issue that Lincoln was aware of. I think there's good evidence that Lincoln saw the humanity in the Native Americans. Much later, during the Civil War, he commuted the death sentences of a very large number of Indians who had been sentenced to death for murders that were committed during the Civil War. But at the same time, during his own service in the Black Hawk War, he came across the scene of several notable Indian atrocities, uh, places where Indians had killed and scalped a number of Lincoln's fellow white soldiers, and it's hard to imagine that that didn't have a big impact on Lincoln's psyche. More generally, the white settlers in the region, that is the western areas where Lincoln and his family were, Illinois and Indiana and Kentucky, had a little bit of a a mixed relationship with the Indians. It was certainly at times transactional, that is, especially the first white settlers in areas. Oftentimes, the Indians in the area would outnumber the whites, and there would be active and forth uh, between the two groups of people. What tended to happen, though, is as more and more white settlers poured into an area, they came into conflict with the Indians, and the result was consistently over time, the Indians being cleared out forcibly and pushed further and further west. So Lincoln has decided to become a lawyer. He has been admitted to the bar, having passed the oral examination of a senior lawyer and being sworn in by two justices of the Illinois Supreme Court. And he is going to go into law partnership with a legislative colleague of his, John Todd Stewart, in Springfield, Illinois. The day 15th, 1837, it's a momentous day in Lincoln's life. It's the first day he shows up in Springfield. He rides into Springfield 
all of his worldly possessions are contained in a couple of saddlebags that he is carrying with him. And he walks into a store right there on the town, the center of square in town, which happens to be run by a man named Joshua Speed. This is the meeting of Lincoln and Speed. It's an episode in Lincoln's life that's very near and dear to my heart because my series of historical mysteries, the Lincoln and Speed mysteries, all spring from this meeting of the two men. Lincoln walks into the general store. He has just contracted with a carpenter to have a single-frame bed made, but needs everything else, needs bedding. He needs mattress, sheets, a cover, pillow. He goes up to the shopkeeper and says, this is what I need. The shopkeeper, Joshua Speed, tallies the items in his head and says, that'll be $19. Lincoln's face falls and he says, I don't have it. If you credit me until Christmas time, perhaps I will be able to pay you back. But if I fail at being a lawyer, I'll never be able to pay you back. It is, Speed thinks, one of the least promising applications for credit he's ever received as a shopkeeper. Speed says, well, hold on a second. I have an extra berth in my bed upstairs because upstairs from the storeroom, uh, Joshua Speed's store, was a narrow room containing two double beds where four men slept, two men in one bed and two men in another bed. And the person who had shared Speed's bed had recently left, and so there was an extra berth in Speed's bed. Lincoln drops his saddlebags, climbs up the back stairs to the bedroom, and pacing around on the floorboards above his head, and Lincoln comes down with a big smile and says, Well, Speed, I am moved. And that is the start of four years of the two men living together in the room above the Speed's general store, and it's the start of a lifelong sustaining relationship between Lincoln and Speed. This meeting between Lincoln and Speed comes in an auspicious time for us to take stock of Lincoln's life so far. The meeting occurs, as it turns out, almost exactly halfway through Lincoln's life. Lincoln is 28 years old at the time of this meeting. He's actually 28 years and two months old. And he will die exactly 28 years to the day after he meets Speed. He meets Speed on April 15th, 1837, and he is killed by the assassin's bullet on April 15th, 1865. So Lincoln meets Speed exactly halfway into his life. And yet, if we take stock of where Lincoln is at this point in his life, he is so far from fully formed, so far from being the great emancipator, the great uniter that we know him in history. He has failed at a number of jobs. He is moving to town in pursuit of yet another job. He has been, in his own words, a piece of floating driftwood. He has been on the run, effectively, from the legacy of his father, not literally on the run, but uh, running away from trying to make his own name in contradistinction to his father and trying to achieve things that he saw his father never able to achieve. And so I think if we were observers in the room, if we were in the Speed general store watching Lincoln and Speed meet each other, and we were told one of those men is going to go on to do great things, we might well think it was going to be Speed. I don't think anyone would have identified at this moment, already halfway through Lincoln's life, I don't think anyone would have identified him as someone destined for greatness, someone who, you know, nearly 200 years later, people would be researching and writing about and thinking about. 
so Joshua Speed was born in 1814 on an estate near Louisville in Kentucky. He was the second son of his father, Judge John Speed of Louisville, who was a major plantation owner in the Louisville area. Judge Speed's slaves raised a big crop of hemp. The Speed family owned about 60 slaves, and the creation of the production of hemp was a particularly brutal crop to grow for enslaved persons. The crop was very ropey and would grow very high. And when it came time for harvest, the slaves were made to tear the stalks out of the ground with their bare hands. That's how the hemp was harvested. In any event, Joshua was well-educated. He was sent to school. His older brother, James Speed, was a lawyer, and Joshua was following in his tracks to be a lawyer. When he took ill, he had an infection of his lungs, and there was every expectation that he would die. This is when he was about 17 years old. In fact, uh, Joshua Speed lived, he survived the illness, and in its aftermath, he determined that he wanted to drop out of school. He did not want to continue his education did not want to continue on the path following his brother to be a lawyer, but instead, as so many other young men did at the time, to go west to seek his fortune. He had a distant cousin who was running a general store in Springfield, Illinois, and who was in need of a partner, and so Speed took it upon himself to move to Illinois, where he knew this distant cousin but no one else, and make a go of it. So Speed has moved to Springfield in late 1834 and early 1835, so about two years before Lincoln shows up. He is a well-educated, well-dressed, refined person, a cultured man. He's a pro-slavery man based on his family's experience and his uh, upbringing. And he is living in Springfield when Lincoln walks in his storeroom. In many ways, Lincoln and Speed would appear to be polar opposites. One very well-educated, one largely self-taught, one pro-slavery, one instinctively anti-slavery, although Lincoln's views on that are certainly still evolving at the time. One cultured, one very rough. And yet, despite all of these differences, the two men instantly hit it on. They become close friends. They become, in the words of one of Lincoln's early biographers, Speed is Lincoln's most intimate friend, and they remain close, lifelong friends for the rest of Lincoln's life. Springfield in 1837 was a typical growing frontier town. I guess one way in which it was not typical, it was not right on a river. It was about five miles south of the Sangamon River, but it had very good soil. It was very fertile soil that farmers could farm, and that was what originally had attracted settlers to the area when it was first settled in about 1820. Springfield was on the edge of a vast prairie which stretched in for miles and miles in almost every direction. It was a beautiful prairie, and the first thing that people traveling to Springfield would remark upon when they were describing their experiences to other people was the beautiful prairie surrounding Springfield. It was a prairie that displayed the seasons. There would be 
beautiful popping wildflowers in the spring. In the summers, there would be tall grasses that reached to your shoulder and that billowed in the prairie winds that blew across the prairie. In the fall, those grasses would turn brown and red with the colors of fall. And in the winter, the prairies would be windswept and snow-covered, sometimes snow very deep. The prairies were fringed with timber, so we'd be walking along the prairies in the distance. We would see stands of dark timber, dark against the light prairies. And oftentimes, there would be prairie fires burning amongst that timber. And one or two travelers would remark that it sometimes seemed as if the clouds themselves were aflame reflecting the bright orange light of the burning prairie fires. So as people entering or approaching Springfield would walk through this beautiful prairie and reach Springfield proper. Springfield proper was anything but beautiful. It was a street grid of muddy streets. There was certainly no paving. There were no sidewalks. The flip side of having good soil to farm is that it was muddy, 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 muddy. There was mud everywhere. In fact, the only people who were happy about this were the wild hogs. There was a large population of wild hogs that roamed Springfield all hours of the day and night. And the main risk that shopkeepers had was not theft and not failure to make sales, but that the wild hogs would try to get at the foundations of the wooden stores of the shopkeepers and root around and tear up the floorboards looking for scraps of food to eat. It was going to be the state capitol. Lincoln and his colleagues in the Long Nine had assured that the state capitol was moving to Springfield, but it took a long time for the state capitol building to be built. Actually, if you go to Springfield today, there's a building there called the Old State Capitol Building, which is a recreation. It's not the original one, but it's a recreation of the Capitol Building that was built in Lincoln's time. But when Lincoln arrived, that building did not exist. In April 1837, there was just a grassy field in the center of town where the Capitol was going to be built. The cornerstone for that Capitol building was laid to great ceremony uh, on July 4th, 1837. The Evening Post, New York, New York, 23rd June, 1837. Architectural Designs. The commissioners for building a Capitol Hall for the state of Illinois at Springfield have awarded to Mr. E.J. Webb of New York two-thirds of the premium offered for the best designs. Mr. Webb had by agreement with the person at Springfield waived all claim to premium on condition that his friends should ensure him the business value of the plan should they not command a premium. But then work stalled. There was a series of nationwide uh, bank panics and the state was suddenly short on money and they couldn't figure out where to get the money to build the Capitol building. St. Johnsbury Caledonian, 19th of December, 1837. The banks are favoured with the privilege of holding the funds of the government upon condition to redeem their notes in specie at all times, etc. Before the middle of May 1837, a universal crash is heard. They fail and falsify all their millions of promises at once. They are unable to pay over the funds of the government. The government says, Henceforth, we will not employ you to take charge of our funds. We think best to take care of our own money, so that we can have at command when and where the public exigencies require. When lo, and behold, uprise some eight or ten hundred broken banks, all their friends, stipendiaries, and dependents, and boldly assert that the government cannot get along without their aid. That is, 
absolutely dependent upon them for its very existence and preservation. The American Republic, the only government upon Earth worthy of the name Republic, dependent on banks, broken banks. What a flagrant insult to every American freeman. It is enough to disturb the repose of the departed heroes who won our independence at the price of blood. So for the first two years that Lincoln lived in Springfield, there was the promise of a state capital to be built. But when he walked out of his lodgings above the speed store each morning, what he saw was not a capital and not a capital being built. He saw a lonely cornerstone lying in the center of a field with weeds growing tall all around it. Other than that, Springfield was a growing frontier town. There were about 1,800 residents at the time. There were 19 dry goods stores, seven groceries, four drug stores, two clothing stores, and a bookstore. There were four hotels and six churches, and there were more places to drink than you could count. There were a lot of places to drink in Springfield. Alcohol, for sure, fueled the growth of Springfield and other towns on the frontier. There was no railroad and there was no telegraph. There would not be for uh, many years thereafter. So if you wanted to get information to someone in Springfield or you wanted to get information from Springfield, the fastest means of communication would be your horse. And the fastest means of transporting information like letters would be the mail pouches of the United States Post Office Department as carried by stagecoaches. Another notable feature of Springfield at the time is that there were many more men than women. And this was very common on the frontier. The frontier living was exceptionally hard. There was a very high death rate, and uh, this tended to appeal more to men than to women. And so there was a large gender imbalance. There is an account of a big party being given for the grand opening of a new hotel in Springfield where there were 200 men and 40 women and half of those women were married. Now, there were other unmarried men and unmarried women in Springfield, like Lincoln and Speed, and the main way that they courted was by going for evening strolls. So if we were in Springfield in 1837 or 1838, and we wanted to see the social scene, the dating scene at the time, what we would do is just go out in the evenings and watch. The way that the unmarried young men and women courted was by going on evening strolls with each other. So if we were in Springfield at the time and we wanted to observe the social scene or what we might call the dating scene, we'd go out in the evenings. Hopefully it would have been dry recently so the streets would be something closer to hard-packed dirt and not the viscous, sucking mud that so often characterized the Springfield streets. And we would see groups of men and women walking together along the street grid and chatting as dusk fell over the town. Now, how did men know who to walk with? Well, a convention developed in town. The woman would light a single candle in a first floor window, and that would advertise the presence of a young woman in that house who was available to walk. But because there was this big imbalance, so many more young unmarried men than young unmarried women, reading the records of the time, you sort of had this image of the unmarried men in town scouring about, hoping to be the first person to catch the flicker of a newly lit flame so that they could be the first person at the door asking the young woman to walk. 
For their part, the young women were said to uh, try to do their best to address this imbalance by doing double or triple duty. And so there are many records at the time of young women hurrying back from the conclusion of one walk and relighting their candle and then being prepared to go out for a second and perhaps the women with the most stamina for a third time going on walks with two or three young men in the course of the evening. Again, you have this image of the young men waiting to pounce, the men who were perhaps not fortunate earlier in the evening, looking desperately for the flicker of a newly lit candle so that they have someone to walk with before the evening is over. So one thing that Springfield had, in addition to grocery stores and dry goods stores and drug stores, was slaves. And this is surprising because Illinois is and always was a free state. It entered the Union in 1821 with the express stipulation that it be a free state. But there were a couple of facts of importance on this issue. The first is that the state of Illinois was a virulently racist state. It had been settled largely from the South. The fact that both Lincoln and Speed were born in Kentucky, and then here we are in 18, the late 1830s, they're both living in Springfield, that's not a coincidence or a quirk. A great percentage of the people living in Illinois at the time had been born in Kentucky, and many of them had brought with themselves racist, pro-slavery views. And that was also reflected in the views of the Illinois legislature. Indeed, one of the very first official statements that Lincoln ever made in his public life about slavery, in 1837, the Illinois legislature, when he was a member, voted on a pro-slavery resolution. The resolution was not going to bring slavery to Illinois because it was banned by the Constitution there, but it was a resolution expressing support of slavery. And the resolution passed 77 votes in favor of slavery, six against. Resolutions upon the subject of domestic slavery having passed both branches of the General Assembly at its present session, the undersigned hereby protest against the passage of the same. They believe that the institution of slavery is founded on both injustice and bad policy, that the promulgation of abolition doctrines tends rather to increase than to abate its evils. They believe that the Congress of the United States has no power under the Constitution to interfere with the institution of slavery in the different states. They believe that the Congress of the United States has the power under the Constitution to abolish slavery in the District of Columbia, but that that power ought not to be exercised unless at the request of the people of said district. The difference between these opinions and those contained in the said resolutions is their reason 
for entering this protest. Dan Stone, A. Lincoln, representatives from the county of Sangamon. Now, Lincoln was one of the six votes opposed to slavery, and he issued a statement on his position about slavery, uh, which condemned it, but was certainly more equivocal on the issue than we think of Lincoln being. Illinois also had what were called the Black Codes, which were very harsh laws regulating the existence and residency of African Americans in Springfield, even free African Americans. The Black Codes required any black person coming into the state to register officially his presence there within the first 24 hours. He had to post a bond, or more specifically, have a white person post a bond on his or her behalf. And there are all sorts of conditions and circumstances under which if the black person did not strictly follow the requirements of these black codes, they were liable to be snatched up by slave catchers and sold into slavery. So Illinois was nominally a free state, but it was not at all a hospitable place for African-Americans to be. All about the black law, the sale of a Negro at public auction in our city, or rather the circumstances connected with the sale is well calculated to call attention to the public, to the effects of our black laws. It is asserted, and we fully believe it, that one individual who was a bidder at the sale intended, in case he succeeded in purchasing the Negro, to take him to a slave state and sell him or treat him as a slave for life. We say that we believe this, and the facts in the case that are known to the public are sufficient evidence of it. The bidder in question is a resident of a slave state, and the high offer made, nearly $600, is pretty conclusive proof that he expected and intended to get more out of the property he was attempting to buy than the month's youth which the law would give him. To suppose that he intended to pay $600 for one month's work of a Negro is simply to suppose the man to be a fool, and we will not insult him by any such opposition. Not believing him, then, to belong to that class of whom it is pithily said that they and their money are soon parted, we are compelled to credit him with the motive we have assigned above, and we think our readers will come to the same conclusion. He then intended to buy the Negro in fee simple and taking him to some remote locality where no evidence could be obtained which would defeat or limit his title to the chattel he expected to make his bondage of an entirely different tenure from that into which the law of the state intended to consign him. There were also a handful of actual slaves, people living in slavery in Springfield, despite the fact that was illegal under the state constitution. In the 1840 census, it recorded that there were 2,500 residents total of Springfield. Of these, 110 were what the census called free colored persons, and six were categorized by the census takers as slaves.
So Lincoln all this time has been a state legislator and has mostly confined himself to local issues. And I think it's probably fair to say has not attracted any sort of national attention. That changes for the first time in January 1838 when he gives a speech to a debating society in Springfield called the Young Men's Lyceum. The speech he gives is on the subject of mob violence and the rule of law. And to understand this speech and why it attracted so much attention, we need to tell the story of Elijah Lovejoy. This is a story that actually forms the core of my uh, Lincoln and Speed mystery, Perish from the Earth. Elijah Lovejoy was a northern um, abolitionist. He was the son of a preacher. He intended to follow his father into the priesthood. He attended Princeton Theological Seminary. But he then went to St. Louis, Missouri, Missouri being a slave state and St. Louis being a cornerstone of the, the internal slave trade in the United States. And Lovejoy had his life transformed. He determined that his calling, the way he was going to serve God, was not to be in the ministry, but to publicize the evils of slavery. Elijah Lovejoy set up a newspaper that published in Illinois decrying slavery and its evils. This quickly made Elijah Lovejoy the most unpopular man in St. Louis. A mob broke into his printing office, disassembled his press, and threw it into the river. And we have to remember at the time that in the 1830s, having a printing press was the sine qua non of being a newspaper man. You could not be a newspaper man without a press to print your paper and get your word out. Lovejoy was married, he had a young family, and he would move across the river to Illinois. So he moved his family and he moved his newspaper to Alton, Illinois, which is in southern Illinois, pretty much right across the Mississippi River from St. Louis. He bought a new press and he again started printing his paper with editorials and articles about the evils of slavery. Well, Lovejoy proved no more popular in Illinois than he had in St. Louis. Again, a sign of how strongly racist and pro-slavery Illinois was at the time. Two more times, mobs broke into his printing office, tore apart his press, and dumped it into the Mississippi River. The civic fathers of Alton then held a meeting in which they debated the resolution that Lovejoy should be made to either stop printing or to leave town. And then they said, does anyone want to speak up in Lovejoy's defense? Lovejoy alone rose. No one but Lovejoy would speak in his own defense. And he gave an eloquent speech on the importance of the free press that is one of the great documents in American history on the question of the free press. Why should I flee from Alton? Is this not a free state? When attacked by a mob at St. Louis, I came here to be at the home of freedom and of the laws. The mob has pursued me here, and why should I retreat again? Town fathers were not impressed, and they voted unanimously to pass the resolution that Lovejoy should either leave town or stop printing. But by this point, Lovejoy's fate was set, and he was a very set and determined, pig-headed almost man, and he made arrangements for a fourth press. So he's had three presses already broken up by the mob and dumped into the Mississippi River, one in St. Louis and two more in Alton. 
he makes arrangements for a fourth press to be landed secretly and stored inside a brick warehouse hard along the Mississippi River. The mob gets word of this, and one night in early November 1837, the mob breaks into the warehouse to try to seize his latest press. A shot is fired from inside. The crowd is outside. The mob outside is armed. Lovejoy comes out unarmed and to try to defend his press, and he's shot six times in the chest and dies. By most accounts, Lovejoy is the first newspaperman in America to be killed in the course of practicing his profession. That is, the first journalist to be killed for his uh, journalism activity. And he becomes a great martyr of the abolitionist cause. Indeed, some historians have later said that Lovejoy's murder, which immediately made headlines coast to coast, and especially in the North and Northeast, in New England and New York, Lovejoy's murder at the hands of a mob became a cause celebre and became proof of the evils of slavery and the evils of pro-slavery men. The Liberator, Boston, Suffolk, Massachusetts, 8th December, 1837. The death of the Reverend Elijah P. Lovejoy in the defense of the press is well calculated to cast a deep gloom over the community. He has fallen a victim to the wicked spirit of slavery, a martyr to the cause of human rights, of freedom of speech, and of the press. Some may be ready to condemn Mr. L. for his perseverance in attempting to outride the storm of persecution which has aimed its fury at his devoted head. But for such, we have no sympathy. If the foul spirit of slavery has already become so potent a foe to the liberties of the nominally free, it is high time that some convincing proofs of it were offered to the American people. And the present, we doubt not, will serve to open the eyes of thousands to behold their danger, if possible, before it is too late for any retrieve from a fatal whirlpool into which we are swiftly being plunged by the curse of slavery. It is said that Lovejoy's murder was one of the most important boosts of the abolitionist movement that not until Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin is published almost two decades later. Now, I should say, what does this have to do with Lincoln? This is all happening about 70 or 80 miles from Lincoln. Alton, Illinois is about that distance from Springfield. There's no evidence that Lincoln and Lovejoy ever met each other, but Lincoln was extremely aware of the Lovejoy story. Lovejoy was murdered in November 1837, and it is January 1838 when Lincoln attends the Young Men's Lyceum and gives this speech which first attracts national attention. Whenever the vicious portion of our population shall be permitted to gather in bands of hundreds and thousands, and burn churches, ravage and rob provision stores, throw printing presses into rivers, shoot editors and hang and burn obnoxious persons at pleasure and with impunity, depend upon it, this government cannot last. By such things the feelings of the best citizens will become more or less alienated from it, and thus it will be left without friends, or with too few and those few too weak to make their friendship effectual. Lincoln doesn't say the word Lovejoy in the speech, but he doesn't have to, because everyone knows that's what he's talking about. Lincoln's speech is about the importance of following the law, the evils of mob rule. That's the lesson that he draws from the death 
of Lovejoy. One interesting postscript is that while Lincoln did not know or never met in person Elijah Lovejoy, the newspaperman who was martyred, he came to know very well Elijah's younger brother, Owen Lovejoy. Owen Lovejoy was there with his brother when he was murdered, and Owen Lovejoy himself was planning to go into the ministry, but threw aside those plans after the murder of his brother to enter politics. Owen Lovejoy was a force in Illinois politics exactly the same period when Lincoln was. He was effectively on Lincoln's radical left, always hectoring Lincoln, that Lincoln was an incrementalist, complaining that Lincoln was moving too slowly on the question of slavery and that he should be moving faster to help eradicate it from the nation. And Lincoln sort of used Owen Lovejoy as a foil in that regard. So Lincoln could say to people, well, look, you may not like what I'm doing here. You may not like my positions, but at least I'm more reasonable than that Owen Lovejoy character. Owen Lovejoy eventually served in Congress. He died in 1864, shortly before Lincoln was to be murdered. And when Owen Lovejoy died, Lincoln said to have remarked, I've just lost my best friend in Congress. So Lincoln gave the speech at the Young Men's Lyceum. It was a smallish debating society in Springfield, but his words were immediately seen as very powerful. A friend of his named Simeon Francis, who published a newspaper in Springfield called the Sangamo Journal, printed Lincoln's speech verbatim. And I think because so much publicity had focused on the question of the mob and slavery in Illinois in the aftermath of the Lovejoy murder, uh, Simeon Francis's printing of Lincoln's speech at the Young Men's Lyceum was picked up by papers across the country, and that would have been the first time that anyone outside of Illinois would have heard of Abraham Lincoln and would have read of his views on issues of national importance. There was another person in Springfield who was a young man on the move and someone who would become a figure on the national stage, and that was Stephen Douglas. Much later, outside the scope of this particular podcast, Lincoln and Douglas's names become synonymous in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, which he placed during the 1858 race between the two men for United States Senator from Illinois. But Douglas and Lincoln were rivals, were contemporaries and rivals throughout their entire political and legal careers. Douglas had been born in Vermont. He had been apprenticed to a cabinet maker, but was quickly seen to be much more qualified and talented than to work as a cabinet maker. He'd made his way west, passing himself off as an itinerant teacher, although he had, like Lincoln, had relatively little formal schooling himself, and he'd ended up in Illinois. In Illinois, unlike Lincoln, who spent a number of years as a piece of floating driftwood, Stephen Douglas was a man on a mission. He was elected to be state's attorney at the age of 21. He was elected to the state legislature at the age of 23. And he was, uh, in 1840, running for the United States Congress seat at the age of 24. Then as now, the Constitution required that congressmen be at least 25 to serve in Congress. Stephen Douglas actually ran at the age of 24 on the basis that he would turn 25 before the election, before he'd be sworn in so he would be qualified. 
Uh, but that just shows what an ambitious person he was. He was a peculiar-looking person, in many ways the exact opposite of Lincoln. He was short. There are reports on this uh, differ, but he was somewhere between 5 feet and 5'2 in height. He was slender. He had an enormous head topped by a big mass of curly hair. The body itself was pretty petite. He had already, by this time, acquired the nickname The Little General, and no one, not even his most ardent political enemies, could deny the appropriateness of that nickname. Now, Douglas was a Democrat, which at the time meant he was opposed in a lot of respects to national and state control of banking. He tended to be opposed, unlike Lincoln, to the state spending money on the internal improvements. And he was instead wanted to have the people have power. In later years, he became synonymous with the doctrine of popular sovereignty, the notion of the people deciding important issues for themselves. And in later years, at the time of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, this became sort of a code word for pro-slavery. In other words, if people are deciding issues for themselves and the residents of the southern states want slavery, that is, the white residents of the southern states want slavery, well, then slavery it should be. So that's Lincoln and Douglas from the start were on different sides of policy issues. They were in different parties. They were from the start. Douglas was seen right away as the future leader of the Illinois Democrats. Lincoln came to be seen over time as a future leader of the Illinois Whigs. And so for a full two decades before the debates, which is what makes their names synonymous with each other, they were rivals. They were also rivals in the courtroom. Douglas, like Lincoln, was a lawyer, and the two men appeared together either on the same side or on opposing sides in dozens and dozens of court cases over the together in Springfield. The 1838 race for the third congressional district in Illinois pitted Douglas against Lincoln's law partner, John Todd Stewart. It was a nasty and violent election campaign, a very interesting election. It actually is the setting for my book, Final Resting Place, which is coming out this summer, the next Lincoln and Speed Mystery book. The year started off with a spectacular political murder. One Springfield politician was accused of shooting another in the gentleman's smoking room at Colonel Spotswood's Rural Hotel in central Springfield. So the election started with a murder and got more nasty. At one debate near the end, several times the candidates got into fistfights with each other. This is not the surrogates of the candidates getting into fistfights. The actual candidates themselves got into fistfights with each other. And at the final debate of the campaign in front of the Springfield Market House, Douglas said something that was so outrageous that Stewart rushed up, picked Douglas up off of the stump on which he was speaking. Again, we remember Douglas is a small man. And carried Douglas around, paraded him around the crowd to great ridicule. In response, Douglas bit down hard on Stewart's thumb and nearly took it off. Stewart's thumb became very infected. And in fact, Stewart then had to miss the final debate of the campaign. Lincoln had to stand in for Stewart because Stewart was bedridden because his political opponent had bit his thumb so severely. When the election time came, the early returns had Douglas ahead 
by a considerable margin. Douglas was conceded to be elected. And then more and more votes started coming in for Stewart, many from very suspect sources. It actually took more of than a year of claims and counterclaims and counting and recounting before Stewart was finally declared the victor by 37 votes out of 36,000 cast, so less than 0.1%. And Stewart went on and served in Congress, much to Lincoln's joy, that was his law partner, and much to Douglas's and the Democrats' disgust. There were lawsuits, there were counterclaims. It was a little bit like Florida in the 2000 election prefigured Stewart beat Douglas. The Weekly Standard, Raleigh, Wake, North Carolina, United States of America, 31 October, 1838. Federal frauds. Many instances of fraud on the part of the Federalists are recorded in the papers which show that the desperation of that party has arisen to an alarming height whenever they have the power to deprive the people of their rights. Mr. Stewart, the Federal candidate, is returned from Illinois by a majority of five, and it appears that 21 votes were thrown out because written Stephen Douglas instead of Stephen A. Douglas. This is a most glaring defiance of the popular will and clearly shows that Mr. Douglas, the Democratic candidate, has been cheated out of his seat in Congress by the Whig partialities of the present governor of Illinois, whose time for mischief is fortunately short. A member of the legislature in the same state, elected by a majority of 12 votes, was denied his certificate, which was given to his opponent. The latter refused to give it up, but consented to a new election knowing that it will take place when the farmers are too busy to attend. At the same time, uh, Lincoln was running for re-election to the state legislature, and he won easily. It was clear that Lincoln was going to win. In fact, Lincoln received more votes than any other candidate in his part of the race for the legislature. And as a result, Lincoln had spent most of his time that summer helping out Stewart trying to take down Douglas. That was their first direct clash in politics, and they would continue to circle each other for the next two decades. Douglas was elected to the United States Senate in 1846. He served there until his death in 1861, and it was as a senator, with Douglas as the seated serving senator, and Lincoln challenging him in 1858 that was the campaign that gives rise to the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So what are they debating during this campaign? Well, the Whigs and the Democrats have different opinions on the important issues of the day. One of the most important issues facing Illinois in the late 1830s is whether the state is going to continue to pay for internal improvements. You'll remember that Illinois had set out to follow New York and other states by building canals, by building effectively infrastructure to support the economy. But Illinois had run out of money. The Whigs, led by Stewart and supported as well by Lincoln, both members of the Whig Party, the Whigs generally wanted the state to have a robust involvement in supporting the state's economy, or the economy of the citizens. And therefore, the Whigs thought that the internal improvement scheme should be rescued somehow, that somehow the state should come up with more money to continue funding the improvements, get the canal built, provide a way for the farmers of the state to ship their goods uh, either uh, over to the Mississippi River and then down to New Orleans or uh, over to Lake Michigan and then through the Great Lakes system out to the East Coast and Europe. So the Whigs were in favor of the uh, internal improvements scheme in continuing. The Democrats were opposed to it. The Democrats, I suppose, were sort of the lower tax, smaller government party, although there really was there was no income tax, of course, at the time. So it was not so much tax as uh, what was the extent of government involvement in the affairs of the people going to be. And Douglas and the Democrats, generally speaking, wanted the state to have less involvement in the affairs of the people and to let the people fend for themselves. The courthouse is the only form of theater. It is by far the most popular public entertainment in Springfield. And uh, when there's a big trial, the courthouse is packed. The audience is spilling out onto the streets outside. Everyone is so excited to hear what's happening because this is the by far the best form of live entertainment or really any entertainment in town. I want to spend a little time here talking about Lincoln as a practicing lawyer because it was a big part of his professional career. Indeed, he spent much longer working as a lawyer in his life than he did as a politician. And he was a prolific lawyer. He was sworn into the bar in 1837, and he continued to practice law all the way through 1860. Indeed, 
when he was running for president in 1860, Lincoln was still working actively on a number of court cases. He handled something like 5,000 cases in his legal career. But those might not be the types of cases that you would have in mind. They were mostly prosaic cases. About 90% of them were civil cases. That is, where there were two private parties in dispute about something. And only 10% of them were criminal cases. Cases where someone was accused of committing a crime. Of the civil cases, Lincoln's typical docket involved land disputes, wills, divorce cases, contested contracts, and collection of debts. Very much routine meat and potatoes cases. He said at one point he'd be overjoyed to collect a debt on a $3 hog. Anything to get a fee in to keep paying the bills. 10% of the cases, as I said, were criminal. Those would be assault cases, a few murder cases, and that sort of thing. He was not anything like a civil rights lawyer. Now, of course, the notion of civil rights and a civil rights lawyer didn't exist at the time, but he was not a crusading lawyer. He was not, I'm sure he was in each case, fighting for what he thought was the right principle or certainly fighting for his client's rights, but he was not using litigation to affect social change in the way that we think of some crusading lawyers of the 20th century and the 21st century. He was, again, a meat and potatoes lawyer. One thing that he did, which very much embodied this, was that he rode the circuit. So there were a few places in Illinois, like Springfield, that were large enough population centers that they had their own courthouse and their own judge assigned there. But there were many other areas in Illinois that were too sparsely populated to have a regular judge or regular courthouse, those were only served by what was called the circuit. So what the circuit meant was that twice a year, Lincoln and the other lawyers in Springfield would pack up their bags, they'd get together in a carriage of some sort, they would take the judge as well, and they would go traveling. They would travel a circuit through the neighboring town and countryside. And every day or every other day, they would stop at another little town. These would be scheduled so the people of a given small town would know that on, you know, say, April 1st, the circuit would be arriving. And so they would have saved up all of the legal disputes that had come up over the past six months or so in town. The lawyers and the judge would arrive. Uh, The people who needed legal services who had disputes would find a lawyer, they would consult under a tree. The judge would set up a courtroom, either in a local church maybe, or just under a tree himself, and there would be rough frontier justice. The lawyers would have met their clients, they would have talked to them for 10 or 15 minutes. They'd then come in front of the judge, present the case to the judge, The judge would decide one way or the other, and they'd move on to the next case. They'd go through 20 or 30 cases in a day. Maybe for a big town, they'd spend two days there, and then they'd move on to the next place. Again, the lawyers and the judge all traveling together, traveling in this circuit. It was a arduous trip. There were few roads through rural western and central Illinois at the time. So the horse-drawn carriage was riding over very rough terrain. 
There were often rivers, and so Lincoln often spoke of having to ford the rivers, wading through them, carrying on his head, his saddlebags held up over his head so his law books didn't get wet as he waded through the river and then waited for them to get the carriage to the other side so they could continue the trip. When they stayed overnight at hotels, the lawyers and the judge would probably all share a bed. So there would be four or five of them together on a single bed, mattress probably made out of hay. It probably stinks of gin. They can only hope that the men who slept on that bed last night didn't have too many lice that are in the bedclothes and are going to attach themselves to Lincoln and his fellow lawyers. And then they're doing this day after day. The circuit was often for four or six weeks at a time, and then they would come back to Springfield. It sounds pretty dreadful, but Lincoln loved it. In the 1830s, when he was unmarried, he would regularly ride the circuit. And then he, of course, gets married to Mary Todd in the early 1840s, but he continues to ride the circuit, leaving home for six weeks at a time, fording streams, carrying the, his law books on his head, sleeping on straw beds that stink of gin, bringing justice to the outlying towns. Now, perhaps that says something about the state of his marriage, that he was so eager to continue doing that. But in any event, it was a very difficult, arduous way to uh, practice law, and Lincoln loved it. Now, I said that Lincoln was not a crusading lawyer arguing legal cases for social change. Indeed, in his career, by far his biggest clients were the railroads. The railroads did not come into Illinois until the 1840s and 1850s. But when they did, they were the big business of the time. This was the oil companies, effectively, of the time. And they got into all sorts of legal disputes. They needed to claim land to run their tracks along. Train engines hit people, hit carriages, hit animals, and they were sued over that. By far, Lincoln's biggest client over the course of his career was the railroad industry, which was, again, the big business of the time. Lincoln also famously represented in one or two cases slave owners trying to reclaim title to their slaves. And these are cases that are important to discuss, not because they're typical of his practice, because they clearly aren't, but because they do challenge our notions of who Lincoln was. The most famous of these cases was the Matson case from the mid-1840s. There was a slave owner named Robert Matson who lived in Kentucky, owned slaves in Kentucky, moved to Illinois for a couple years, bringing his slaves with him, and then wanted to move back to Kentucky with his slaves. And the slaves, the enslaved persons, viewed and went to court to argue that they were should now be free because they had been moved by their, voluntarily moved by their owner from a slave state to a free state of Illinois, and that they should be free. Lincoln represented the slave owner. That is, Lincoln represented the man who owned the slaves in Kentucky, and Lincoln argued that the slaves should remain slaves, even though they had lived for a couple years in the free state of Illinois. And the legal question here was whether they had moved to Illinois, if the law said they thereby became free, or whether they were merely passing through. The law was pretty clear that if slaves merely passed 
through a free state, that transit didn't, by virtue of that, did not make them free. Now, as it turned out, although Lincoln was arguing in favor of this slave owner here, he lost, and Matson's slaves who made the argument were set free as a result. Interestingly, this is the exact same issue that the United States Supreme Court would decide 10 years later in the famous or infamous Dred Scott case. The case decided in 1858 that was a one of the main precipitating factors of the Civil War. In the Dred Scott case, as in Lincoln's Matson case, the question was whether a slave who had been moved by his owner to a free state had thereby been set free. And the United States Supreme Court, as unlike the court in the Lincoln case, the United States Supreme Court ruled that he had not been set free and that even further, slaves didn't have rights under the Constitution to begin with. And it was that harsh ruling that was one of the main factors that led the country to civil war. That the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States do not include nor refer to Negroes otherwise than as property, that they cannot become citizens of the United States nor sue in federal courts, that Dred Scott's claim to freedom by reason of his residence in Illinois was a Missouri question, which Missouri has decided against him, that the Constitution of the United States recognizes slaves as property, and pledges the federal government to protect it, and that the Missouri Compromise Act and like prohibitory laws are unconstitutional, that the Circuit Court of the United States had no jurisdiction in the case and could give no judgment in it and must be directed to dismiss the suit. We talked earlier about the death of Anne Rutledge, the first love of Lincoln's life, back in New Salem in 1835. After that, Lincoln haphazardly pursued a few other women, but eventually resolved that he was going to remain single. He said at one point, I can never be satisfied with anyone who would be blockheaded enough to have me. But then a whip-smart, vivacious young woman, vivid blue eyes and rose-red lips, moved to town. A woman named Mary Todd. Mary Todd was born in Lexington, Kentucky. Very smart woman, politically active. She was a member of the Whig party in her local town from about age 10 or 12. And she was a relative of Lincoln's law partner, Stuart. So Lincoln's law partner was John Todd Stewart, and the Todd was the same Todd as Mary Todd. Mary Todd moved to Springfield in 1839. She was actually the third of the Todd sisters to move there. Robert Todd, uh, Mary's father, had five daughters, which was something of a misfortune at the time because as the father of five daughters, you needed to figure out who you were going to marry them off to. And so the pattern, the sort of migration pattern of the time was that uh, second sons like Speed went to seek their fortune out west in Illinois because the first son was going to inherit the property further east, and the second son had to go seek their fortune. And then fathers of daughters sent their daughters west uh, to, in search of marriage because, as we've said earlier, there was a big imbalance of unmarried men to unmarried women in the west, and therefore uh, 
daughters were very likely to be married off once they got to the West. And in fact, Mary Todd is the third Todd daughter to go to be sent to Springfield. Robert Todd has a successful strategy. He has successfully married off his first two daughters by sending them to Springfield and convinced of how well this has worked. He is now sending his third daughter, Mary, to Springfield. When Mary arrives in Springfield, she lives in the home of her eldest sister, Elizabeth. They a very good marriage. Elizabeth Todd has married a man named Ninian Edwards, who is a legislative colleague of Lincoln and sort of the scion of the founding family of Illinois. Ninian Edwards' father, also named Ninian, was the founding governor of the or territory of Illinois and later became a governor and senator from the state of Illinois. So Mary Todd moves in with her brother-in-law Ninian and her sister Elizabeth. They live at a big mansion on Quality Hill. Springfield is basically a swamp, a muddy swamp, but there's one hill near the center of town which has six mansions on top of it. And that's where all the wealthy or the very wealthiest of the people in Springfield live. And that's where the Edwards Mansion is that Mary moves into. Now, Ninian and Elizabeth, uh, when they realize that there is a courtship forming between Mary and Abraham Lincoln, they're very much opposed to this courtship. They find uh, Lincoln uncouth and too rough. And so Mary and Abraham had a rocky courtship during the course of 1839 and 1840. Mary has also been flirting with some of the other young men in town. So for a while, Stephen Douglas pursues her. For a while, Joshua Speed pursues her. But she decides that she's got her heart set on Abraham. And notwithstanding her sister and her brother-in-law's objections, she decides to marry Abraham. And Mary and Abraham are going to get married on January 1st, 1841. And then something happens. And Abraham Lincoln backs out of the marriage. And it's not exactly clear what happens, but for whatever reason, Lincoln gets cold feet and then falls into a Great Depression. Today, we would call what happened to Lincoln a nervous breakdown, although although that's certainly not what they called it or thought of it at the time. Lincoln has always been subject in his life to melancholy. He calls it the hypos, which was short for hypochondriasm. But he has now and effectively has a nervous breakdown. He spends days and days in bed. The legislature is in session. He's just been reelected to the legislature for a fourth time. But he misses the legislature for days on end. Friends are on suicide watch. They're afraid he may take his own life. And friends go around and try to remove any sharp objects that might be in his way. So the engagement breaks off on January 1st, 1841. Here's an account about Abraham that was rented on January 19th, 1841. That is less than three weeks after his engagement has fallen apart. The eyewitness uh, wrote that Lincoln, quote, is reduced and emaciated in appearance and seems scarcely to possess strength enough to speak above a whisper. His case at present is truly deplorable. But what prospect there may be for ultimate relief, I cannot pretend to say. A few days later, on January 23rd, Lincoln writes to his law partner, Stewart, who is in Washington, D.C. at this time, serving in Congress. And Lincoln writes, 
I am now the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on earth. Whether I shall ever be better, I cannot tell. I awfully forebode I shall not. To remain as I am is impossible. I must die or be better, it appears to me. So Lincoln is in a very bad state. Indeed, uh, when I was doing research on Lincoln's early years and young life, I came across a remarkable document from this time. And it is a document in which John Stewart, John Todd Stewart, so Lincoln's law partner who's serving in Congress at the time, writes to Daniel Webster, who's the United States Secretary of State, recommending that Lincoln be appointed ambassador at Bogota in Colombia in South America. And this is a recommendation written in March 1841. And clearly the context of that is Stuart so worried about his friend and law partner and his mental state that he's trying to get him a government position thousands of miles away from Springfield and thousands of miles away from Mary Todd and trying to get Lincoln sent to Bogota, Colombia. How different U.S. history might be, we can imagine, if that request had been granted and Lincoln, instead of staying in Springfield, instead of staying involved in Illinois politics, had shipped off to Bogota, Colombia. As it turns out, the request was denied for reasons that I can't really tell from the historical record, and uh, Lincoln remained in Springfield. Part of the reason for Lincoln's melancholy may have been the fact that he no longer had his best friend Speed by his side. Speed's father, Judge Speed, had passed away in Louisville in March 1840, and Speed promptly made arrangements to return home to his family's estate of Farmington. Speed left Springfield in early 1841, right at the same time that Lincoln was struggling with the fatal 1st of January and the dissolution of his engagement to Mary Todd. Eventually, Lincoln started to feel better, and in August 1841, he planned a trip and made a trip to Louisville to visit Speed and the Speed family plantation, Farmington. It was a time for the two men to reconnect for some rest and relaxation for Lincoln. While in Louisville, Lincoln spent some time with Joshua Speed's older brother, James Speed, and attended meetings and sessions at James Speed's law offices in central Louisville. The relationship between Lincoln and James Speed was itself to prove a lifelong one. And in fact, in the Lincoln administration, James Speed, the older brother of his close friend and former roommate Joshua Speed, James Speed served as Lincoln's attorney general. James Speed was actually the attorney general for Lincoln at the time of Lincoln's assassination. And James Speed was the person who made the consequential decision still cited as precedent in the U.S. legal system that the conspirators who shot Lincoln would be tried by military tribunals rather than by the regular civilian court system. Lincoln and Speed spent several weeks together in Louisville and then took steamboats together down the Ohio and up the Mississippi back to Springfield. On the course of that steamboat ride, they had a searing encounter with a group of chained and shackled African-American slaves being sold down the river. It was an encounter that made a huge impression on Lincoln and that Lincoln was to remember years later in a letter to Speed. There's a 1855 letter 
where Lincoln writes to Speed, saying, do you remember what we saw back on that steamboat trip? You know I dislike slavery, and you fully admit the abstract wrong of it. So far, there is no cause of difference. But you say that sooner than yield your legal right to the slave, especially at the bidding of those who are not themselves interested, you would see the union dissolved. I am not aware that anyone is bidding you to yield that right. Very certainly, I am not. I leave that matter entirely to yourself. I also acknowledge your rights and my obligations under the Constitution in regard to your slaves. I confess I hate to see the poor creatures hunted down and caught and carried back to their stripes and unrewarded toils, but I bite my lip and keep quiet. In 1841, you and I had together a tedious low-water trip on a steamboat from Louisville to St. Louis. You may remember, as I well do, that from Louisville to the mouth of the Ohio, there were, on board, ten or a dozen slaves shackled together with irons. That sight was a continued torment to me, and I see something like it every time I touch the Ohio or any other slave border. Abraham Lincoln, letter to Joshua Speed, Springfield, Illinois, August 24, 1855. One interesting thing that Lincoln's depression illustrates is the treatment of mental illness at the time in the United States. And in short, the treatment was appalling. There was a great confusion. First, it should be said, basically all medical care in the 1830s and 1840s was appalling from a modern standard. Uh, Bloodletting, bleeding, that is using leeches to suck blood out of people, was thought to be a pretty much universal remedy. And most would have their own colonies of leeches specifically bred to be effective bloodletters when patients with any number of conditions would show up at their uh, medical practices. Mental illness was very much not understood. Some people had some sort of vague notion that it was some sort of illness in the head. And so there are all these stories of people trying to knock the illness out of the head, doctors trying to give great blows to the head of people who seem to be afflicted with mental illness to see if they couldn't knock the illness away somehow. There was also various things in the nature of what we would think of as electrical shock treatment, where doctors would attach batteries to people and to their heads to try to shock the illness out of their heads. There were no mental hospitals, and so people who were mentally ill were almost always consigned to the care of their relatives and locked away. Very often they would just be in their relative's house and the relative would, uh, for not being able to control the person who had the mental illness or having any, and not having any idea of the right way to treat the person, the relative would just lock the door and, you know, wait for the person to die, basically. There are also cases of the mentally ill being turned over to poor houses. There were a series of poor houses throughout Illinois for people who could not support themselves, which were mostly widows and children. But there were also cases of the mentally ill being confined to poor houses. When I was doing the research for my book series, I came across a report 
on uh, one of these poor houses that was done by a social reformer in the 1840s that had a small metal cage out back behind a poor house, which appeared to be inhabited by some dirty rags. But then when the reformer looked a little bit closer at the cage, the rags moved and it was a man who was insane, crazy, and had been abandoned by his relatives. And the master of the poorhouse had locked him away in this cage. Every week or so, he would be pulled out of the cage, restrained by ropes, and the cage would be cleaned. But otherwise, he was certainly treated no better than an animal. And that was the way that mental illness was treated. Now, that's, of course, severe mental illness. That's not what Lincoln had here. But it shows the level of care that was going on at the time. The only thing that Lincoln did for treatment throughout his life for his melancholy or his hypos was to take what he called the blue mass, a little blue colored pill that was very commonly prescribed at the time and was thought to help with mental illness. In fact, the blue mass was a medicine based on mercury. So almost certainly what Lincoln and the other people who were taking the blue mass were doing was instead giving themselves mercury poisoning a little dose at a time instead of taking anything that might help whatever sort of underlying mental conditions they had. The 1840 presidential election featured a rerun of the 1836 election with President Martin Van Buren facing the war hero William Henry Harrison. Lincoln worked hard campaigning all summer for Harrison and served as one of his electors, and this time his efforts paid off. It was a close election, but General Harrison beat Van Buren, and for the first time, a Whig was elected president. Lincoln and his fellow Whigs had great hopes for what Harrison would be able to do for the country during his presidency, but unfortunately they were dashed. Harrison gave the longest inaugural speech in presidential history, promptly caught pneumonia, and served for just over a month, by far the shortest presidency in American history. And he was replaced by his vice president, John Tyler, who was a former Democrat and quickly reversed all of the, or blocked all of the Whig party programs that Harrison had been inclined to follow. Death of President Harrison, City of Washington, April 4th, 1841. An all-wise providence having suddenly removed from this life William Henry Harrison, late President of the United States, we have thought it our duty in the recess of Congress and in the absence of the Vice President from the seat of government to make this afflicting bereavement known to the country by this declaration under our hands. He died at the President's house in this city this fourth day of April, Anno Domini, 1841, at 30 minutes before one o'clock in the morning. The people of the United States, overwhelmed like ourselves, by an event so unexpected and so melancholy, will derive consolation from knowing that his death was calm and resigned as his life has been patriotic, useful, and distinguished, and that the last utterance of his lips expressed a fervent desire for the perpetuity of the Constitution and the preservation of its true principles. 
in death as in life, the happiness of his country was uppermost in his thoughts. Back in Springfield in 1842, there was an episode that almost derailed Lincoln's entire political future. Anonymous letters appeared in the local newspapers challenging the actions of a state official named James Shields. The letters were signed anonymously by, quote, Rebecca, end quote, but the people in Springfield quickly figured out that Lincoln was the real person behind them. In fact, Mary Todd, who had started to get back together with Lincoln at this time, Mary Todd may have been in large part responsible for some of the letters, but Lincoln took uh, sole responsibility himself. Shields challenged Lincoln to a duel in September 1842, and Lincoln felt obligated to accept. Now, dueling was common in many parts of the United States in the 1840s, but it was expressly prohibited in Illinois, and there were severe criminal punishment for anyone who even observed a duel or served as a second in the duel. So Lincoln had put himself in great potential peril, both legal and political, by getting himself involved in a duel challenge and indeed accepting the duel. As the challenge party, Lincoln had the right under the duel code to specify weapons. In one of the great humorous moments of his life, when in his choice of weapons, Lincoln specified not the standard dueling pistols, but rather cavalry broadswords of the largest size. This was a funny thing to specify, both because they were much less likely to be fatal than were pistols. Lincoln, who was about a foot taller than Shields and had a, therefore a much longer reach, figured that the broadswords gave him a significant advantage. Lincoln and Shields and all of the other participants in the duel, the seconds and whatnot, in fact traveled all the way from Springfield to a place called Bloody Island, an island in the middle of the Mississippi between St. Louis and Alton, Illinois, where the duel was to take place. But fortunately for the fate of U.S. history, the, the seconds at the last minute were able to work out a compromise. Lincoln and Shields dispensed with the duel and shook hands, and therefore Lincoln's political career was never tainted by his participation in an illegal duel. Now, as the Rebecca Letters incident indicates, Lincoln, on his return to Springfield, started to see Mary Todd again. It's not clear exactly what it is that had caused their breakup in the first place or what it is that caused them to reunite, but in any event, they did get together. And on very short notice, in November 1842, they got married. When I say very short notice... Lincoln called up his friends on the morning of the day of the wedding and said, I'm marrying Mary today. Ninian Edwards and Elizabeth Edwards hastily made arrangements, and the marriage took place that very afternoon in the parlor of the Edwards living room. There have been various speculations about why it was that Lincoln and Mary Todd, after such a long engagement and such a long courtship with its ups and downs, decided to get married in such quick fashion. So with the marriage to Mary Todd, this early period in Lincoln's career comes to an end, and this podcast is also going to come to an end. We've covered more than half of Lincoln's life. Lincoln, when he gets married in 1842, is 33 years old. 
very old to be getting married at the time for the first time. We've covered more than half of his life, but yet it is by far the least studied part of his life. For example, in David Herbert Donald's magisterial authoritative biography of Lincoln, the period of time that we've covered here covers only 74 of the 580 pages. But I hope you'll agree with me that it's part of the most consequential part of Lincoln's life. We see him growing up in his father's household. We see him adrift, a floating piece of driftwood, after he leaves the house. We see him struggling to find a profession. We see him in the state legislature struggling to make his mark. We see him moving to Springfield, making a lifelong best friend with Joshua Speed, reading Barr, becoming a lawyer, and finally finding a profession that suits his unique talents. Now, what's ahead for Lincoln? There's another story, and it's the story that's better known. The story of the Civil War coming, of Lincoln rising to national prominence, and ultimately being elected president, and going down in history as the man who freed the slaves and saved the Union. But all of that's still a little ways in the future. He and Mary Todd got married. They moved into the Globe Tavern, a rundown old stagecoach inn around the corner from Lincoln's old lodgings above the Speed Store. And they lived at the Globe Tavern, renting a room for $4 a week for room and board for the first few years of their marriage. At the same time as his marriage to Mary Todd, Lincoln decided not to run again for the state legislature. And so his service in the state legislature ended after four terms. The election of 1842 went forward and Lincoln was not a candidate. Many Whigs encouraged Lincoln to run for governor as the Whig candidate. And there's a good reason to think that Lincoln would have won and would have been elected governor, but he decided not to in the end. And to his great disappointment, the Whig candidate lost and a Democrat was elected governor of the state. Like we could easily imagine that Lincoln, looking forward to his marriage with Mary Todd and soon thereafter to their growing family, felt the need to make money and wanted to devote himself to the more lucrative business of practicing law. Looking a little further ahead down the field, Lincoln's to serve as a one-term U.S. congressman from 1847 to 1848. He's then to return to Springfield, continue practicing law, and increasingly speak out on national issues. The nation begins spiraling towards civil war. Lincoln is an increasingly important voice trying to save the Union. But all that's for another time and another story. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm-hmm. 